Grab your Bibles and open to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, speaking of running, by the way, uh, I'm not a marathon runner. I have no desire to be a marathon runner. Um, but I think if you do, then one of, those, um, one of those marathons that I think every marathon runner wants to be in is uh, the Boston Marathon. You know, maybe New York or Chicago, but the Boston seems to have sort of this folklore around it and prestige around it that uh, everybody wants to be a part of. It's the oldest marathon in the United States. Uh, you know, tens of thousands of people show up to race this thing every year. And apparently one of the things that makes the Boston Marathon unique is um, all of them are 26.5 miles, right? But, but apparently the Boston Marathon, when you get to about mile 20, they, uh, they have a place uh, on the, in the race that they call Heartbreak Hill for obvious reasons. Um, Heartbreak Hill is a fight against gravity. Uh, it's, it's about uh, mile 20, and it's this apparently the steepest grade in any of the you know, large marathons. And it's called Heartbreak Hill because people get there and say, you know, my thighs are burning. I'm about to die. I'm thirsty. I don't know that I can go on, and now you want me to climb this hill. Well, it's this half-mile climb, and many people, that's the end of the race for them. So they line it with all these spectators, and they're trying to cheer people on, and people are sort of walking up together through this thing, trying to get through this hard, really, really difficult part of the race so they can flatten out, come over the top, and begin to see the finish line. The writer of Hebrews has been telling us that the life of faith is like a race. It's like this grueling race of endurance. And he says, I want you to run that race with endurance. And I want you to know, he's told us very plainly, I'm not going to try and, and, and tickle your ears and tell you everything will be great. In fact, the, 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 the race is a struggle. The struggle is part of the race. And the good news for the Christian, what we learned last week, is in the middle of the trials, in the middle of the despair, the middle of the, of the, of the, uh, the suffering that we go through, we can, we can know that none of it is meaningless, that there is purpose, that there is something that God is trying to do. He's trying to accomplish something. And so we have this great hope. It's like us knowing that, man, if I can crest heartbreak hill, the finish line will be basically in sight, and I've just got to keep running, and, and, and I can finish. And, and, and this is God saying, listen, I, I, know, I know the suffering is hard. I know the hardship is difficult, but it all has purpose. I'm actually trying to accomplish something in you. So we learned about it last week. We looked and said, man, he's trying to show you he's his child. You're his child. He's trying to show you that he loves you. He's trying to purify and you make you more like Jesus. All these things that God is doing, there is meaning in our suffering. So what the writer does today is he turns and says, I, I want that to help you. I want you to finish the race. And I want you to finish it. I want you to have the endurance. And so I'm going to do everything I can to keep you going. So I'm going to show you what to do to finish the race. I'm going to show you what not to do if you want to finish the race. So pay close attention because, man, if you're like, I want to finish this race and I don't, I don't want to falter. I don't want to die on Heartbreak Hill. I, I want to make it to the end where I see my Savior and I inherit eternal life and I get all of that. Then listen up very carefully. He's going to tell us what to do and what not to do, okay? And the first thing he's going to tell us to do is simply be encouraged and then be encouraging, okay? Now watch this. Watch how he does this. Start at verse 12 
And look what he does. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands. Now, stop right there. We'll finish it out in just a second. But I want you to see that word, therefore. We've looked at this, I don't know how many times. But that word, therefore, means I'm concluding my argument, right? I've, I've, I've now told you all these things, and I want, there to, I want you to draw this certain conclusion. And so what's the conclusion? I want you to see that everything I've just told you means God is for you. God is not against you. God is on your side. God wants you to hear this and not give up in the race. He wants it to encourage you. The very first thing you need in this race of faith is simply to be encouraged and understand that everything God is doing, He's doing for a purpose. He is for you. The writer of Hebrews wants that to be a massive encouragement. I'm not just running. My thighs aren't burning. You know, the acid buildup isn't just there for no purpose. God is doing something, and I can take great hope in that. But now, now watch, how, watch how he continues this. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. Now, let me say a couple of things about this. He's, he's kind of getting back to this track metaphor, this running metaphor. So he's got knees and he's got hands and feet, all the things that we need to run the race. But when you read that, and this is one of the limitations of the English language, you might read that and make it very personal. You might look at that and go, okay, so what he's saying is this, Chris, stand up. Don't be so weak. I mean, come on, lift, stop whining and keep running. I don't know about you, that, that's kind of how I first read this. I'm reading, I'm thinking, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm being told to kind of buck up, you know, buttercup, do better, <laughs> right? And, and so I, I read that and think, man, oh, oh, okay, well, that's not what he's saying at all. See, the writer of Hebrews knows Scripture really, really well. And there's sometimes when he tells you it's written and he, he quotes Scripture, it's very obvious. There's other times when he alludes to it And unless we have our minds attuned to that, we'll miss it. And this is an example right here where he is wanting to take the audience back to a place in Scripture that he's referring to. And he's referring to Isaiah 35. Now look at what Isaiah 35 says. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Is he talking to weak people and feeble people? No saying, others do this for them. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Do you hear what Isaiah is saying, which the writer of Hebrews, go back to Hebrews 12, is borrowing? He's saying, you know what I want? I want you to be in a kind of community. I I want you to be the kind of church foothill. I want you to be the kind of people of God that come around the the weak, that come around the feeble, that come around the people that say, I'm about to climb Heartbreak Hill, and this is devastating, and I don't think I can make it. And you come around them and you say, yes, come on, you can do this. The Lord is with you. He will come See, see one, of, one, of the things, one of the things that hardship does, one of the things the race of faith does is, is it can feel very lonely at times. It can feel like I'm on my own I, I, and I can lose perspective and I start to feel like maybe God's against me. Maybe all these hardships that I'm going through mean, means God is not for me. They say, man, 
you need people around you who are reminding you, yes, God is for you. In fact, isn't that interesting? He talks about knees and hands and feet. Paul actually says in a few places in Scripture, he refers to us as the body of Christ. Like we all have a part to play. And if any one part is suffering, the rest of the body is suffering. That's true, right? Like you ever, ever, ever break an arm? Okay, you understand you can't disconnect the pain of your arm from another part of your body. Now, I'm not saying that my leg actually feels the pain of my broken arm, but your legs will compensate for that pain, won't it? It'll, it'll be like, you know, tenderly now, walk tenderly, because, because if you jar, that's going to hurt. And your whole body knows how to react to that. Just saying, this is, this is one of the things we do. We, we come around as the body, and we act like the body. We say, be encouraged, keep going. And Michelle... Um, raced and or you know, was part of this affinity group. We've talked about it a lot, and they did this, they did this um, marathon or whatever half marathon down at Griffith Park. And but but I remember she would come home. They would do these Saturday training days where they'd run you know three miles, then five miles, and seven miles, and ten miles. It seemed ungodly to me. And and they 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 kept doing this. And she would come home, and she was always so happy, which I just cannot understand. Right? You ran that much, and you're that. I mean, they take ice baths. It was horrible. Like, they literally get in the bath and put ice in there. I'm like, God, why? Why do people do this, right? But she gets done, and she was always so happy when she came home. And part of it, she would, she would, she would explain that it was so wonderful. What was so wonderful about it? Because I ran the whole way. Like, Katie Dobransky and Kelly Hurley were with me and all the way encouraging one another. Like, there was just somebody beside me. They weren't letting me run alone. I was so encouraged by that, and it, it, it allowed me to keep going. How many times, I, I, I can't think that this has happened in my life, and I'm like, you know what? I feel, like, I feel like walking. I feel like meandering off the road. I feel like I don't, I don't know if this is worth it. And some friend, some mentor, Michelle, my kids, somebody will come up alongside and say, Chris, God is not against you. He's for you. He's not trying to hurt you. He's not trying to beat you down. He's trying to beef you up, right? He's, he's, he's not punishing you. He's purifying you. Be encouraged. Let me help you. Let me come alongside because someday I'm going to need to be that person for somebody else. See, this is what God says, man, you want to finish the race, then you've got to be encouraged by what I'm doing in your life and you need to be an encourager. But now, now, what's the result? What happens when you receive that kind of encouragement? What happens when you give that kind of encouragement? Look at the last part of verse 13. He says, so that, okay? So, so here's the reason you do that. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. There's the whole body image again. Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 or 4, he's going to talk about us as the body. He's going to say, you know what happens is Christ is the head, but then God gave us all of these joints and ligaments and bones and sinew and hands and feet and all this. And when they're working together according to what God has for a man, it produces this maturity. James says that, that man, we, we want to come together and we, we want to be, be healed, right? We, we want there to be healing that happens. I mean, how discouraging if you're running up Heartbreak Hill and there's people going, you'll never make it. <laughs> Just give up now and get off the road. 
No, what we need is people to come beside us. Man, you, yes, you, you will. Like, I'm here. I'm, I'm here to help you. God is with you. God, most important of all, the Holy Spirit's inside of you. He's going to do these things. This is what people do for us. This is why we're the body of Christ. So he says, first thing is be encouraged and be an encourager. The second thing he says is that you need to, you need to run after peace and holiness. Now, before we talk about it, let me just say this. See, one of the keys to the Christian life One of the keys to enduring until the very end is knowing that God is for you. One of the things that's going to keep you in the race is that God is up to something good. That that He may ask you to do difficult things, but He is always, always up to something good for His children. That is hugely important because now when he gets to verse 14 and says, chase after, pursue peace and holiness, I need to know that. And I need to know that because that is very, very difficult to do. So he says, run after, chase after, peace with everyone. By the way, that, 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 word, that word pursue or strive in verse 14 is the, is the same word that's used in Scripture of persecute. Like when you persecute something, you, you're zealous for its downfall. Okay, you are zealous for it to be nothing. So, so what he's saying is you go after conflict. You go after lack of peace. You go after lack of unity. You destroy it for the sake of peace. This is one of the central ethics that you're going to see in Scripture. That the writers of Scripture from beginning to end are going to say that that we ought to be striving for peace. Paul's going to say what? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, that we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be eager. Are you eager for that? Like, I I want to be at peace with everyone around me. I'm eager. I, I strive for it. Look what he says in Romans chapter 14. Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upper, upbringing. Don't, don't pursue the things that make for conflict. Don't, don't pursue the things that, that make for, for, for tearing people down. You say, but that's hard. Like, like there's some people that won't cooperate with me when I'm trying to be at peace with people. Look what Paul says in Romans 12. He says, if possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. See, Paul, in some ways, he says, okay, you've tried. You've tried everything. I mean, it, you're saying, I, it, it, to the extent it has depended on me, I have pursued, I have chased after, I've striven after being at peace with everyone. But some people will not live at peace with me. Some people will just reject my peacemaking. And Paul says, that's okay. You've done everything you can. And after you've done everything you can, then just leave it up to God. See, I need to know that. I need to know that God is up to something or that kind of peacemaking, I'll never go after it. I'll never chase that. That's too hard. But the second thing he says is not only that, but what we're to, to do is not just strive for peace, but strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, what is holiness? We talked about that last week. Because when you think, some people think, oh, crud, man, I've got to be perfect and I've got to be prudish and I've got to be sort of like the Puritans and uptight and my hair in a bun and no makeup. And, you know, if you're a woman, you have to wear culottes because you can't wear pants. I mean, what is he saying? What does this mean? Holiness just simply means I want you to be more like Jesus. 
I just want you to be more like Jesus, right? No one will see the Lord without holiness. Now, holiness has fallen out of fashion in our day. And I want you to hear what he says. Strive for holiness. Pursue it aggressively. Let me ask you something. Is that on the top of your agenda? That what God has called me to do is be pure. God has called me to be holy. And when I see things that I I feel the grieving of the Holy Spirit inside of me that says, that's wrong, that shouldn't be happening in your life, Chris, do I submit to God and say, Jesus, Jesus, chip away whatever doesn't look like you. I want to be like you. See, there's no way. The Bible says, let me me make sure you understand. The Bible says right now, if you are a Christian, there are two kinds of holiness. There There is positional holiness. That is that because of the death of Christ and my placing my faith in that and trusting him for all that he said he would be for me, if I do that, he says right now, you are as righteous, as holy as Christ. Amazing. God looks at me and says, you're as holy as Jesus. Now, you and I look back at God and say, "Uh, no, I'm not. Because what we see is our practical holiness. I know that things come out of my mouth that shouldn't come out of my mouth. I know thoughts run through my head that shouldn't be there. I know that I behave in ways that are absolutely a violation of Scripture at times. And so what I do is I strive for both kinds of holiness. I, I strive, Christ has paid all the price for my positional holiness, but I strive to be practically holy. Do you strive to be practically holy? Does that matter to you? Because the writer of Hebrews says it ought to matter because if it, if it doesn't, then you could lose the race. Like you could fail to finish the race. Okay, so that's what to do. But now he says, there's some things you should not do. Okay, these things, you absolutely don't want these things to happen to you. And this is verses 15 through 17. And the first thing he says, what not to do, is I don't want you to fail to obtain the grace of God. Okay, so look at, look at verse 15. just says it very plainly. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. I don't want anybody to fall behind, right? Now, this is interesting. That word, see to it, is uh, the verb form of a noun that is used in other places in Scripture, and the noun is overseer. It's a word for a pastor, an elder. Now, he's not just talking to pastors and elders here. He's talking to everyone. See to it that you don't fail. See to it. So in other words, what he's saying is, I want every Christian to be overseeing every other Christian so that we don't fail to obtain the the, the grace of God. Now, we don't like this, do we? We are rugged, individualistic Americans who nobody tells me how to live. Don't get up in my face. Don't tell me what to do. The Bible says, here's the picture. You, you're running the race, right? We're running, trying to get to the finish line. And you start noticing that someone's lagging behind. And they're lagging behind because maybe, man, they look like they're limping. It looks like something's wrong with them. 
And the person who sees to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God is not the person who notices, and oh, bummer for him, he's limping, I'll keep running. It's the person who slows down and goes, look, buddy, I see you. I see you, and I'm not going to let you fall behind. And I'm going to be with you. And we're going to get up this hill. I'm going to be your companion through all of this. See, see, this is kind of a holy meddling. Do, do you allow that in your life? Do you allow people to speak honestly? Do you have somebody in your life, some people in your life that can rebuke you when you need to be rebuked and encourage you when you need to be encouraged? This is why it's so dangerous for us to live in isolation. This is why, you know, our sort of American Christianity can be so deadly. Because we really do think that we can live alone. And he's saying, no, no, this can't happen. You will not finish the race alone. This is why we're so big, by the way. This is why we talk about it all the time. Growth groups, affinity groups, serving on a service team, all these things. Why? Why? I mean, this is, hear me, this is absolutely not about you sitting there and listening to sermons and singing songs. This is everything to do with people being in your life at these moments to say, you finish I'm here with you. And I could go around this room and tell you there are people sitting here today that have sat here this weekend and say, I would not be here if I did not have that kind of brother or sister who are, who are coming and saying, I'm going to make sure you don't fail to obtain the grace of God. I'm going to run with you. I'm going to march with you. I'm going to hold you up when I need to to make sure you finish the race. See, he wants us to finish the race. He wants us to make it to the end, and it will not happen alone. You'll never make it alone. So, so you say, well, if I don't make it, if I fail to obtain the grace of God, then I can blame you because you weren't there to catch me and oversee me. Well, maybe. The truth of the matter is I, I, I don't see that very often. What normally keeps people from obtaining the grace of God are simply things they fail to do that God has held out in front of them and said, this is basic Christianity 101. And if you will just practice some of these basic 101 principles, you will receive the grace of God. But some of you are blocking, if you will, the grace of what God wants to do in your life because there's certain things you won't do. Things like what? Let me give you three things. Unconfessed sin. Just sheerly refusing to confess our sins to each other. Now you see, that's what I mean. This is not about, I don't even know you. Why would I confess my sins to you? This is about, no, I know people well enough. I know other believers well enough that I can walk up to them and say, you know what? I got to tell you, I am struggling right now. I am struggling with my thought life. I am struggling with porn. I am struggling with some sexual addiction. I am struggling with anger. I am struggling with these things. James says this in James 5. He says, confess your sins one to another and then pray for each other. Not, you confess your sin, oh my gosh. You're, holy moly, I've never heard of that one, right? 
We don't want to be that church. Man, I want to be a church where people can come and say, I'm broken. I am so broken. Please pray for me. And people lay their hands on your shoulder. One guy, one gal, and say, I'll pray for you. Come on. And he says, you pray for them. And then James says, that you may be healed. God will heal you. Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, man, that, that we bring our sins into the light. And that's where the light of Christ can shine on us. Are you allowing that to happen? See, th- listen to me. There is absolutely no advantage to unconfessed sin. You think there is. Like you think you're protecting yourself. You think somehow if I, if I keep this in, then I'm insulating myself from, you know, raised eyebrows and I'm, I'm doing this. The fact of the matter is you're hurting yourself, you're killing yourself, and you're failing to obtain the grace of God. How wonderful. You know, the whole thing, you understand that I, I, I ask for forgiveness and I'm forgiven. That's one of the beauties of the gospel. We bring it into the light. And Christ shines on it and says, my grace is bigger than that, Chris. And I'm going I'm to forgive you. And I'm going to change you. And you're going to be healed. Unconfessed sin. Or how about this? How about just an unopened Bible? Right? This is where some of us fail to obtain the grace of God. Some of you by having an unopened Bible. When the word of God is grace poured out to us. It is waiting. I mean, it's this canister just waiting to dump on you. That's why Paul begins every one of his letters with grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, I'm about, to, I'm about to write Scripture to you, and as you hear this and receive this, this is the grace of God, and I'm going to show you yourself. I'm going to show you Jesus. I'm going to put a mirror up to your soul, and this is all the grace of God trying to help you, trying to be for you, not against you. And then he ends every letter with grace be with you. Now you've heard it. Now take that grace and run with it. How many of us fail to obtain this precious gift of grace by simply opening our Bibles? We, we, we don't listen to what Scripture says. Or how about, how about this last one? How about just uncommitted fellowship? Like I'm talking about you're just not committed to a local body of believers. Right? If, you, if you're from this area, then you, you know. I mean, people around here treat churches in this area like it's some sort of ecclesiastical buffet. I like this church for that and that church for this and that church. I just sort of bounce around and do my thing. I like their worship and his preaching and that youth group and their children's ministry. How about you pick one? How about you're committed? How about you, how about you go and say, this isn't about me and what I can consume See, so many of you miss out. You understand, listen, the Bible has a lot to say. We should read our Bibles. We should, but you know what? Sometimes, sometimes the greatest thing, in fact, the, the, the emphasis the Bible puts is the greatest grace is in the hearing of the preached Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ through a preacher. I'm not saying I'm the Word of God. I need this too. I need to hear the preached Word of God. Where are you going to hear that? And don't tell me the radio. Don't tell me the internet. That's well, completely disconnected from a body of believers. See, Paul prays. I want to say it's uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Paul prays, man, I'm praying for you. 
And I pray that you might know the height and breadth and depth and width of the love of God. The greatest need you and I have is to know God more so that we can love Him more. Paul says, I want you to know this. And you know how he says you know it? Together with all the saints. You can't know the height, breadth, depth, width, all of that of God apart from the people of God. God wants to speak to you in these kind of environments. God wants you to be around other people that love Jesus, that follow Jesus. See, we fail to obtain the the grace of God for very minor reasons. I mean, this sort of 101. The the writer of Hebrews has already told us some of you will fail to obtain the grace of God because you have this nasty habit, he's already told us in earlier chapters, of not meeting together. You've actually gotten into a habit of not meeting together. I was just listening to something this week that said, that said now there are a lot of Christians out there who believe that they are regular attenders. They are habitual attenders that attend church once every six weeks. Okay, that's eight times a year, uh, almost nine. There's no way that's a habit. There's no way that's nourishing your soul week in and week out. There's no way that you're opening up the funnel for God's grace to pour into you at that kind of infrequency. Just uncommitted fellowship. And we fail to obtain the grace of God. But then what else does he say? So that's going to that's keep you from obtaining. But, but what else is going to keep us from running and finishing the race? What, what should we not do? And that's the second thing he says, and that's tolerate open rebellion. I want you to listen to me very carefully here so that you don't misunderstand what Scripture says and you don't understand what I'm saying, okay? So let's read this together. Look at verse 15. So he's saying, see to it, right? So watch over each other that this doesn't happen. And now the second part, that no root of bitterness springs up, causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now what is that? He puts it in quotes, this root of bitterness, Well, uh, like I told you, there's times when he tells us, hey, I'm quoting to you Old Testament, and there's times when he just alludes to it, and this is one of those times. So Deuteronomy 29, look what it says. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike, Deuteronomy 29. That's what he's referring to. So what's the root of bitterness? It's not an attitude. It's not I'm getting bitter. It's a person or people. This is a person who goes, I'm part of the covenant people of God. Jesus Christ is my Savior. He's my Lord. He's, he's, I believe that he died for my sins. I'm a member of this church. I just can live my life any way I want to. And you can't tell me how to live. I'm safe. I'm good. My sin is irrelevant. And the writer of Hebrews says, if you leave that kind of open sin unchecked, that will be a root of bitterness that will defile many. You will kill your church. That's what Paul says. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he basically says the same thing. Now watch, watch what Paul does here. And listen very carefully so that, again, you don't, you don't misunderstand what the Bible is saying about how we handle this kind of sin. He starts off in 1 Corinthians, and he says in verse 9 of chapter 5, he says, I wrote to you in my letter. So there is a previous letter that we don't have in Scripture. Um, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now stop right there. If you've never read this before, you'd be like, oh my gosh. I'm not even supposed to associate with, but Chris, Paul, God, I, I know all kinds. I'm friends with all kinds of people that I know are, are, are sexually immoral. They have sexually immoral lifestyles. I, you know, a friend of mine's addicted to porn. I, uh, guys, I know just, you know, lusting and talking about girls in really awful ways. Uh, you know, a friend is li- living a, a lesbian lifestyle. I, 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 I know there's these people. I'm not supposed to associate with them. That seems so unchristian. But now let's read what Paul said because that's not what he's saying. He says this, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm not saying become Amish. I'm not saying we seclude ourselves. No, no, no. You go out and you, your friends with those people and you love them and you're part of them and that's okay. I want you rubbing shoulders with non-Christians, with pagans, with people who are not part of the covenant people and they're engaged in these sins. That's totally acceptable. In fact, we need to. Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. But look what he says. But now... Verse 11, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler for not even to eat with such a one. So here's the guy. Here's the root of bitterness. Here's Deuteronomy 29. Here's Hebrews chapter 12. Here's this person who's saying, I'm a follower of God. I'm part of this church. I do everything. But you know what? I get drunk every weekend. You know, it says don't get drunk in the Bible. Who cares what the Bible says? I do what I want. You can't tell me what to do. You know, I'm having sex with somebody who's not my wife. I'm proud of it. No. You cannot, you cannot name the name of Christ, say I'm a Christian, and say I don't have to live by any of this. Now, what got Paul so riled up to say this? Go back up to the top of chapter 5. Look what he says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. What's another name for a father's wife? A mom. This is about as creepy as it gets. This is a mom and a son having sex. And apparently, the whole congregation knows about it. And he goes on to say, and you're arrogant. We're accepting. We're tolerant. It's okay. Hey, they're Christians. He did not say if there are two people who are pagans who come together and they're living together and they're having sex, but they do not name the name of Christ and they're not walking with Jesus and they don't even know, they have no idea about it. He's not saying you boot them out of the church. He's saying, this guy, no way, church. 
He says, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And look down at verse 6. You're boasting. They're actually boasting about this. this is, we're a progressive church. We're a tolerant church. We actually put up with this kind of sin. We think that's a good thing. It makes us accepting. We are a radically accepting church. And he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You know what he just said? He's not here. Okay, so, so what are we supposed to do, Chris? If I walk around here and go, let's see, talk to me. What's your sin? What, what are you struggling with? Okay, you're out of here. Right? You go, oh, you're struggling with oh, that bummer for you. Out of here, right? We, we couldn't have church because I couldn't stand up here. He's saying, don't you understand when there's this sort of open, you're arrogant, you know about it, you guys think this is a great thing, you're celebrating sin he says, that's going to be like yeast being dropped in the middle of dough, and it will permeate, and it will, that cancer will spread to your entire church. And he's going to go on and say, you expel that cancer. You hand that man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so his spirit can be saved. Listen, if we tolerate that, if you tolerate that, if you think that open rebellion, if you think that sinning just flagrantly, you can, you, you'll never make it to the finish line. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, man, I want you to make it. I don't want you to fail to obtain the grace of God. I, don't, I want you to cross that finish line. But you're not going to do that if you do this. But now look at this last thing. You're not going to make it to the finish line if you give in to sinful appetites. So look at verse 16. This is, all, this is another see to it. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now what's he talking about? First book of your Bible is called Genesis. 25th chapter of Genesis is this story that he just talked about. And let me just summarize it for you. What we find out is we're introduced to these two guys, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the older brother. Jacob is the younger. And in that culture, the oldest son received what was called the birthright, a double blessing. And in Scripture, that birthright is indicative of, is symbolic of, if you will, all that God has promised for you. Everything that God, the divine inheritance, the divine blessing on your life. That was his right. That was Esau's right as a firstborn son. And we learned that Esau was a guy who loved to go out hunting. He was a strapping boy that made his dad proud. Jacob was kind of soft and timid and worked back in the tents and, you know, liked Food Network. <laughs> That's okay. I love Food Network. But this is true because I'm just telling you. This is what it says. Well, it doesn't say Food Network. But um, it says that he's back at this point. He's, he's making soup. Jacob is in the tents making soup. Esau comes in from the field, 
hard day at the office. You know, he's worked, he's been out there hunting game, doing all the things that he loves to do, comes back into, and he smells the soup. Right? You ever have one of those days, you, 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 you ran out of the house, you didn't eat breakfast, you, you, you skipped lunch, you worked through lunch. By the time you get home, you're just like, you know, open the cupboards. Where's the chips, ice cream, I'll put anything I can get into my gullet, right? I just, I have to eat. You're starved, famished. So he walks in and he smells this soup. It's red soup, by the way, and he gets the nickname Red. I mean, probably that's what they called him, the, the name Edom and Red uh, sound alike. So he, he, he walks in, he smells this, oh, oh, Jacob, let me have some soup. And Jacob goes, uh, no, no, uh, tell you what, sell me your birthright. Give it to me and I'll give you soup. And Esau says, what do I care about my birthright? Who cares about all this stuff that's laid up for me? I am so hungry, I'm about to die. Give me the soup. And Jacob goes, swear, promise, I promise. It means nothing to me. At the end of chapter 25, Moses writes this. So Esau despised his birthright. And the writers of Scripture cannot get over it. Esau is one of the most reviled men in Scripture. Why? Because it seems so dumb. Because he did this. He went to the scales, and over on this side, he put all the blessings of God and all of what he was, was coming to him in the, in the divine birthright and all the divine inheritance that he was to get. He, he stuck it over on this side of the scale and over on this side, he put a bowl of soup and he chose the soup. And the writers of Scripture go, I don't, I don't understand this. How could you so despise your birthright? You know, what, you, know, you, know, you know what Esau's doing? He's saying, I've got needs. I've got appetites that need to be fed to hell with God's birthright. I'm hungry. I'm horny. I need my physical appetites met. And he gives up all of what God wants him to have for a momentary pleasure. How many people will be kept from the finish line? Because what they want is what they can hold in their hand right now. Some momentary physical pleasure and appetite versus all that God has for them. So many people will exit the racing field because they look and say, oh, give me the soup. Give me the sex. Give me the pleasure that I can have right now. I don't care about this. And then you know what the Bible says? You know, you know, you know what the writer of Hebrews then tells us? Then when he wanted it, he couldn't have it. Though he sought it with tears. And you know what, you know what it says there? Because it sounds like, wait a second, he repented. No, you know what it says? You know what it actually says in your scripture? It says he, Esau found no place for repentance. That's literally what it says. 
And no place. I don't, have, I don't have a place for this. I mean, yes, I'm bummed out. I'm bummed out because, man, I just gave up that, and I see what I gave it up for, and that really stinks. And, and, and so he even cried crocodile tears, and oh my goodness, he felt this kind of grief over it. But the writer of Hebrews and the writers of Scripture say that, that meant nothing. See, God will forgive and accept anyone who genuinely repents. Not just somebody who feels momentary grief. So, so Paul's going to say this. He says, I rejoice. I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. I, I like where that took you. I like that God worked in your heart and you actually repented. Because look, look what he says next. For godly grief does something. Now notice this. It produces Repentance. There will be something that results from godly grief that leads to salvation and that without regret. Whereas worldly grief just produces death. What's the difference? How do I know? Well, it's pretty easy. Worldly grief is just like, I'm bummed out for the moment. But there is no fruit. It doesn't result in repentance. It results in me feeling like, man, shoot, I missed out. Or, Gosh, it's, or it just stays there as kind of this dead grief that goes nowhere. But godly grief is this living bacteria, if you will, in your soul that takes you somewhere, that produces something. It says it produces repentance. It produces a change of mind. It creates fruit in your life, and that will lead you. That change of mind, that actual repentance will then lead you to salvation. And you will look back, and you will have no regrets with worldly grief. You'll have every regret in the world. I'm just filled with regret. What are you trading? What are you trading the blessings of God? What are you trading the finish line for? What are you you trading all that God has for you for? And now that you realize, that just sort of produces a little bummer. Or does it produce a kind of grief that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation without regret? That's what God wants to do. Jesus said, man, anybody comes to me, I'm not going to cast you away. But you know what will cause you to come to Jesus? Repentance. You know what will cause you to turn to Jesus when you realize, I don't just feel this temporary, momentary grief I feel a grief that wants to take me and turn me away from my sin and turn me toward Jesus. And I place my faith in him and I'm saved. That's what God wants to do. Worldly grief or godly grief? Which one do you have? Let's pray.